sultry tones. Yeah. See if we can. But I, I'm still around for questions. Okay, so later today we do have the couple of SIPs being presented, including 301 to kick off. Uh, we okay to talk about work that's currently in play. But Noah, do we have Mark? Is Mark on? I'll do the V2X update in absence of Mark being here. Mark, if you're here, just jump on. Um, so this week, the audit should be finished up for 258. And there's a testnet release for 258, um, which I think got started yesterday. The audit on 230 is, is happening from ISRO. And we're finishing up. Um, the internal review of the new debt futures market, which is 257. Um, are there any other questions about the bits of work in progress for those SIPs? Sound like it. I know there's a couple of other topics to the council's keen to discuss today. So, yeah, sorry, just a just a quick one. Um, just looking at the uh, the sheet here, um, I see that we've got ETAs for two fifty two, two thirty, and two fifty eight. Um, are we putting ETAs for things like the debt ratio? Futures market. Can we get those ETAs updated? Be helpful for those of us that are in yeah, context. We, yeah, we've been using those cautiously, um, and usually for the work that's cl closer to hand. Um, we are at a. Uh, we're pretty close to deprecating this sheet, which is why it's a. It's sometimes a, a little bit out of sync if it's a static sheet. We are hoping to shift pretty soon to using. Um, GitHub natively, which we're using internally. And fairly soon, we'll switch to using that externally, which does more classical kind of um, work in progress and end times, and, and we'll be a little bit more uh, up-to-date and integrated with the work that's going on rather than a static sheet that gets updated. So, yeah, those ETAs okay. haven't, been, haven't been super helpful. Um, they've more indicated, I suppose, the work that we have a better handle on, um, higher confidence, um, okay. Tips. Thanks. Thanks for the call. Uh, there is a question about how much SNX is at risk of being liquidated immediately on two fifty two. I think if you'd had a look at that, uh, I don't know what the latest price. Maybe Caleb has checked recently, or he can get that number. I, I suspect it's maybe not as much given the current price. Yeah, I can check it. Um, 
Am I missing something? I, how how could there be any that's eligible for liquidation? Are you saying that there's people that there's abandoned addresses that have been fully liquidated except for the escrow that are still sitting underwater and absolutely and left there? Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess. Okay. Yeah. I would be surprised if it was very much at this price. Um, two million, according to Sam. Yeah, no <laughs> you need to subscribe to a new news service, my friend. <laughs> I believe that's the number I, I, I incorporated into the SIP itself. Yeah, I can see that at like two dollars, but it feels it feels unlikely at, at above four. But I mean, we should we should definitely work out what the upper bound is. Um, I guess if we're just assuming it's um, it's all of the. Uh, all of the addresses that have been liquidated up to their escrow. If we just assume that, then that's probably we can we can look at prior liquidations and, and mark that out. But it's it, it feels like penalties, though. I know. Yeah, that's actually a good <laughs> point. That's that's a good point. Um, so um, just thinking about it, the total liquidated uh, is something on the order of ten. 20 million um snx if i'm not mistaken it was it was in that range um and you'd have to be assuming that like you know this 30 percent escrow so um i would have assumed that the number uh like the raw number was higher more like three to five million or something like that um so i'm assuming that two million number must be factoring in um uh current prices yeah it's assumed uh... It assumes current prices at the time I wrote the step. Um, right, okay. I just, I, I guess after liquidation, right, if you assume like, you know, let's say 30% or 40% of whatever their that stack was escrowed, after liquidation, their C ratio would have been brought, you know, closer. And then the fact that the C ratio was sitting at 300%, even at 400% now with the price action, you would imagine that would unflag them. But I guess we just have to look at it again. I think that covers the key couple of approved SIPs that are close to release. And we do expect a release next week for 258, which has been the top of the priority to improve performance of atomic swamps. So if there aren't any other specific questions on the V2 work, which I don't think there are, um, Happy to hand over to Noah for a high-level update on V3, knowing that we will do the 301 SIP later. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, I mean, at a high level, I'd say we've got, yeah, we'll do the presentation of uh, 301 in a little bit, um, and a lot of the implementation of that is in a pretty good spot. So we can start getting things into audit once uh, the SIPs start passing. Um, DB's working on a draft implementation of uh, 305 right now, and then that leaves uh, 304 and 306, I think, to, for draft implementations. Um, so yeah, generally, I, I think we'll get into a rhythm where we can do presentations, sort of polish off the 
um, implementations, get them into audit, um, and then progressively sort of move through, um, yeah, 300 through like 306 or so over the next, uh, yeah, month, month or two, I guess. Um, and we're simultaneously making progress on the front end to, uh, interact with those contracts. Um, I've been focusing on coordinating with, uh, the other, uh, designers and engineers working on V2X to make sure there's some cohesion there and we're not doing too much duplicative work. Uh, and that's all going in the right direction right now. I'm happy to answer any questions, but I think that sort of covers it at a high level. Thanks, Noah. Saving so all the questions for your last connection for a second. Did, did, did oh. anybody, was I asked anything while I was gone? Uh, strangely, no. <laughs> Perfect. So it's around like half a million SNX. That's how much would be liquidated after we um, activate the escrow liquidation. Say that again. Uh, half a million SNX is the number. Okay, that's not. Yeah, that's not too bad. Okay, so happy to um, turn the conversation over for the council. Um, any questions on V2 or V3 that you wanted to ask, go ahead. Otherwise, I know there are a couple of other topics that wanted to be covered and uh, we have Kane back. So I'm sure Kane has a couple of questions. I haven't gotten to the point of questions yet. I'm still re rethinking my node. So there was curiosity from some members of the community about the process by which partnerships are being made with synthetics, in particular Gauntlet and Jump, uh, because it's something that seems to bypass Spartan Council governance, and therefore there's a kind of a, a black hole of um, public knowledge about it. So if anyone's able to kind of give a rundown of how Jump and Dauntnet came about, and perhaps um, suggest ways in which transparency in that process might be addressed. I think it might be appreciated. Oh well, yeah, I can I can definitely speak to uh, the jump situation. I think um, because uh, I was pinged on it a couple of times while it was being worked on, just to get a sanity check. Um, presumably as a large holder, as opposed to someone with any authority, since. That clearly is no longer the case. Um, so I don't think it was in uh, in my um, role as a Spartan Council member that I was consulted, but um, the Treasury Council is responsible for, uh, you know, anything relating to, um, you know, liquidity, um, you know, provisioning uh, incentives, et cetera. Um, and I think that given uh, the price action of SNX and the fact that liquidity was drying up, uh, there was uh, a sense from 
uh, the Treasury Council that they needed to uh, bolster on-chain liquidity and off-chain liquidity and, and you know, re-inject some liquidity back in. Um, so they you know, went to Jump, who um, we previously worked with in the past. They actually went to a number of people. Um, and as much as Jump, I think, uh, gets criticism, and certainly, you know, I've been I've been critical of them in the past. Uh, in the very dark times, they're one of the few people that was kind of willing to step up and and put capital on the line. Um, so I think that speaks fairly highly of them. Um, you know, obviously they're they're market makers, so you know they're fairly mercenary. But um, yeah, I think the reality was that the Treasury Council uh, needed to, to you know, come up with some ways to bolster liquidity. Um, and I think my sense is empirically that it worked fairly well. Um, the whole reason why we elect a Treasury Council is to give them discretion to go and do deals like that because you couldn't do a deal like that in public, I don't think. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think you know, if we're not happy with it, the, the result um, and I don't know that that's even the case. I think this is more about transparency relating to it. Um, but the entire reason why the Treasury Council was constructed in the way that it was, was to have the discretion to go and act in you know, a time of crisis or whatever, um, which is what they did, I think. Um, so my personal view is that I'm, I'm happy with it. Um, but I think the, the sort of recourse that we have as a community, if we're not happy with, the, with what the Treasury Council is doing, is to vote out the people who are on the Treasury Council. I mean, I would preference something like a presentation given by the Treasury Council prior to these things being announced um, more fully, because we reach the situation where members of the Spartan Council are being queried about the specifics on how things came about, and we are entirely separate from that process. So better integration in that area might at least public facing improve sorry so i guess it comes down to, to two things right like you have separation of functions for a reason right um the spartan council had enough problems uh you know to deal with during that time um around you know communicating uh what we we're doing about liquidations and you know all of the stuff that was going on managing the core contributors and resourcing what have you the reason why we have the treasury council as a separate body to manage the treasury is specifically for that reason to have a separation so that they can focus on what they need to focus on at the time um i think there's a separate question of are they sufficiently transparent um and i think that that is something that's come up repeatedly in the past right like there's you know there is a sense that the treasury council is not as transparent as people would like about what they're doing um i i don't know like my I'm probably biased more towards saying, you know, we need to be measuring the effectiveness of the Treasury Council, I guess, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, their, their transparency. Um, but I can certainly see the argument for wanting more transparency, but we don't have a governance process where the Treasury Council is, uh, you know, sort of responsible for presenting their uh, plans, right? Like we, you know, the whole point of having discretionary body to do these things is to allow them to make plans and then go and execute them. Uh, maybe after the fact, it would be good um, to have some disclosure around like what was done in the previous epoch, so that people can then judge it um, and decide whether they want the people who made those decisions to be continuing to make decisions in the next epoch. 
Um, so maybe some more like retrospective transparency would be helpful. Um, but like on a fundamental level, I'm very happy with the Treasury Council. Uh, this is my personal take as a large token holder with the Treasury Council going and acting on our behalf, um, you know, in, in a time of crisis or even just in normal operations and, and making those decisions on our behalf. That's why we give them that discretion. I would definitely I like know, some. However, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I, I just, think retrospective or some um, maybe like quarterly or annual reporting would be great after the fact, but I, there's really no way that those types of things get done publicly. Like it, par partners like that w don't operate that way and they really need discretion be able to do those sort of things. It, it just doesn't work that way. Um, but the public part is that it's on chain. It's so you can see after the fact. After the Wow, agreement, Cassette? What's happening here? What have I come back uh, to? These are my people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I do agree with you on that one. Um, I do think there's a difference between activities that result in treasury investment versus activities that result in publicly announced partnerships in terms of the necessity of the wider community and especially the Spartan Council being made aware of them as soon as is practically possible and given some kind of um, briefing as to how it came about and the terms of the partnership, etc. Because Gauntlet, there's very little if you look into it. Yeah, so Gauntlet's a separate one, right? Like, so I think, you know, Jump was uh, purely uh, done by the Treasury Council um, to bolster liquidity. You know, that was, that was what the intent of that relationship was like to call it a partnership is basically just uh you know saying that there is a commitment for them to provide liquidity uh to the snx token uh, you know over the next whatever it is like i don't know the exact terms like six months or 12 months or something like that um so you know partnership is a strong word there really it was like hiring a market maker to go and, and inject some liquidity into the market and you know be uh sort of uh on the hook i guess to um you know uh essentially ensure that you know the market's functioning uh, effectively like that was that was all you know there's nothing more or less than that right so i don't know that the Spartan council really needs to have any input into that process like that is the mandate of the treasury council to defend the treasury and and um ensure that you know the protocol has sufficient funds to continue operating like that is its mandate it doesn't need to consult with anyone else or even inform anyone else about that But again, I think it's necessary that the Spartan Council, as the oversight body of the entire protocol, is made of aware. But they're of not. But see, I think this is a mistake. I, th I see this is. I think there's a there's a mistake here. Uh, there's a mistaken premise um, in in your uh, in your perspective, which is that the Spartan Council is not above the Treasury Council. Spartan Council is responsible for making decisions about changes to the protocol. The Treasury Council is an independent body that is responsible for 
defending, protecting the treasury, ensuring that the protocol has sufficient funding to continue continue operating. They're not, you know, one of them does not sit above the other. They're independent bodies. I think there's also a certain degree of misunderstanding from the other side in that I'm kind of aspiring for the left hand to be talking to the right rather than any kind of tierage or hierarchy between the two. Because sure. when people come into the <clears throat> channel, they may ask questions about a partnership quite, quite rightly. And for the major participants in that government's channel to have very little knowledge of the background again, about a particular partnership um, isn't ideal. Yeah, I, I get that. But like, if we're talking about like organizational separation, right? If there's something that let's just, let's ignore this specific case right now, right? Let's say there's some like competitive <clears throat> information, right? That the Treasury Council has uh, that for whatever reason, you know, we don't want to disseminate to the market, the wider market, right? And so we've given them discretion to go out and do something um, on our behalf because it's going to be beneficial to the protocol for whatever reason. Some some just arbitrary thing right if someone turns up and says hey i want to know what that was right there is uh and we've had this happen many times right there is um i think oftentimes an unfounded expectation in the wider community in crypto in general that people have this entitlement to like know everything that's happening um and i think that sometimes that is good but we've deliberately constructed a governance structure that allows us to have discretion for people who are mandated to make decisions, to make those decisions and not disclose every single thing that happens. And that's okay, provided there is accountability. The accountability is that there's a three monthly election and if they're doing the wrong thing or whatever, then they're gonna get voted out, right? We don't have any more accountability required other than that, that we have like a functioning governance system that keeps the people who are making those decisions accountable. And we seem to keep voting the same people in. So we must be reasonably happy with the job that they're doing as you know, uh, you know, a community. I don't think anyone who turns up in Discord is like, tell me what the terms of this deal were that was done you know, between uh, the protocol and, and some you know, external party. I don't think they have any entitlement to have that information, to be totally frank. Like that's my genuine, and I think if we, gave them that entitlement, it would actually be net detrimental to the protocol. And we may as well have this discretionary body that's operating as a treasury council, we might as well just go to like direct token voting, right? And have, you know, someone propose like an open, you know, whatever, uh, like a SIP or something to say like, let's partner with Jump here at the terms and we all vote on it directly. And we all know that that's idiotic. So we can't have it both ways. We need to we need to either accept that there is discretion and that some things need to be discretionary and that not everyone is entitled to have all of the information, or we need to say that, you know, we believe that everything needs to be out in the open and we need to then manage what the implications of that are. When you have a body like Gauntlet um, who's coming on and delivering solely uh, SEC piece to the to the Spartan Council. Some context would be useful so that we know how to negotiate. Hundred percent. So, like this. That's why I've been uh, agreed. That's why I've been not referencing Gauntlet. Right. I think the jump thing and the Treasury Council generally is is different. I actually don't recall who the body was that did the deal with Gauntlet. I think it may have been the Treasury Council. I think that may. 
I, maybe someone can correct me if, if I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. Um, I think it was maybe the Treasury Council allocated that funding. Um, it may have been the core contributor committee or like the proto core contributor committee. I don't exactly know. Uh, but I do agree that the point of Gaunt was to come in and operate uh, as like an advisory body to the risk council, which was never actually formed. And the risk council was supposed to have their own budget that they would allocate like the treasury council to, um, you know, pay for reports or pay for, um, you know, analysis or whatever. And, and we've done this periodically in the past, right? Like we've gone to like external bodies and said, you know, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill, right? Like Crypticon, we used a bunch of times, Delphi Digital, we used to do reporting. So like there is a historical precedent for like going to external bodies and paying them to do reports and analysis for us. Um, the point of the risk council was to be the place where that sat and for the risk council to then be accountable for the budget that they're spending um, and what the terms are of you know any deals that they're doing. I don't think that th that kind of fell over because the risk council was never constituted and, and didn't get that SIP never got voted in. Um, and so I think that it, it kind of fell through the cracks. So I think Gauntlet, the relationship with Gauntlet probably was not managed, um, you know, uh, optimally, uh, I think in hindsight. Um, that said, I, I still don't know exactly who's paying Gauntlet. So I, I don't know who it is that needs to actually uh, kind of, you know, step up and say, this is, this is the terms under which we did this thing. But I think it was like a, a short term deal for like a year or something like that. So, you know, at some point we'll, it'll come back up for renewal and we'll have to make a decision about it, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Then to return to the beginning, then it's the process that I think could do with some elucidation. Just so everyone has 100%. And the process, the process around, yeah, I, I like no, I have no dispute whatsoever around, uh, you know, if we go out and, um, and I think if my recollection is when we did that with Delphi as well, that there was it created quite a bit of, uh, I don't even know what the right, uh, a little bit of tension, let's call it, right? Because people were like, I want to know if we're paying an external body, how much are we paying them? And like, I don't like the report. Or, you know, there was a lot of tension because they were saying like, don't miss this and don't miss that. And it just creates, it, I think it is a, a point that can become a bit fraught um, when you're bringing external bodies in and saying like these people are going to tell you what to do i think people just in general don't like that and so they start like trying to pick out a little bit i think gauntlet's kind of fallen into that category a, a little bit right where there's a bit of tension around like who are you to tell me what the c ratio, ratio should be for example right um i know better than you or something along those lines um but yeah i agree the, the process of uh the process of doing something like that really should fall in the risk council and we should when we actually do vote in the risk council, uh, I think we should revisit that mandate um, and, and be more explicit about what that is. I think Gauntlet is just kind of grandfathered in at this point and it is what it is. Uh, but again, like feel free if anyone from the CCs or whatever is listening and, and you think I'm, I'm off base here, um, I'm happy to, to hear it. No, I stood up in my chair and clapped. While you're talking. <laughs> Great, thanks. Glad, glad to. It's not with the CCCs, and it was Treasury Council, as, as far as I know. Okay, it was Treasury Council. So yeah, and that's so, like, paying for yeah, it. And it. Right, and if the Treasury Council is paying for it, I think the reason why the Treasury Council probably was paying for it, if I remember correctly, is that I think when the proposal was made, um, 
someone needed to pay for it. The risk council didn't have a budget. There was an assumption that the risk council was going to have a budget and that the treasury council would be giving it to them. So the treasury council was like, well, we'll just do this until the risk council is set up. Um, the risk council is something I think it would be really nice for us to have. Uh, it would save uh, a lot of thrashing, I think, when it comes to like, you know, uh, contentious discussion. I think it would take a lot of pressure off the Spartan Council as well, right? Like, you know, all of the contentiousness that we've had over the last like few months in the Spartan Council, I think would be reduced a little bit if we had uh, a kind of, you know, separate independent body that was like making recommendations to the Spartan Council. Obviously, we don't need to listen to them. That's that's not uh, that's not mandated, right? They're not they're they're an advisory body, um, not a decision making body, um, but. Yeah, I, I think that that would have taken a little bit of, of tension out of the room if the Spartan Council wasn't like solely responsible for making all these decisions without um, input from, from other people. So these are all things that I think, you know, from a governance perspective, um, and I've been thinking a lot about governance of the last few weeks while I've been uh, taking some time off. Um, I think that there are a lot of meta-governance things that if you look back at the last year, we could fix and, and i you know i know you feel very strongly about this Tara. so you know i think that that's something that we need to be thinking about this epoch as a spartan council like what are some of the meta governance uh, issues that we've we've seen and how do we address them um especially like leaning into v3 uh, just picking up on something I, I think you said um so there was a proposal um if there was is that something that we the wider community shouldn't necessarily anticipate seeing ourselves? Um, again, I would say no, right? So like, let's say someone turns up, let's say I'm Delphi Digital, right? And I turn up and I say, hey, I've got this really good framework, right? For assessing risk of something, right? Um, and I turn up to the risk council and I say, hey, risk council, we want you to pay um, $50,000 for this report, right? We've written this like, amazing software and it's got to run you know, an analysis of your contracts and do something or who knows, right? I mean, the same thing goes for auditing, right? We pay a lot of money for audits. No one ever complains about audits or, or you know, uh, kind of, I don't know, uh, questions the agreement or partnership that we have with our audit firm. Um, it's, it's something that's just done, right? It's at the, and, and realistically, that is also, you know, paying for audits should fall under the risk council as well, I would say, within their budget, right? So what is the thing that allows us to know that the risk council or whoever is allocating resources towards these competing things, right, um, is doing a good job? Well, they've got a finite budget, let's say, right? So if the risk council had a quarterly budget of $500,000, let's say, right, and they spent all their money on gauntlet, right, and therefore couldn't do audits, well, we would probably have a problem with that, right? They'd have to go back to the Treasury Council and say, hey, we accidentally spent all of our money on, you know, this crazy thing, and it was a boondoggle, and it, wasn't, and it didn't work, and now we're broke, and we need more money. And I think that that process of the risk council requesting more money from the Treasury Council maybe could be something that is is more transparent, the fact that they like went through their budget or whatever, or what the budgets are. But I think we need to give these bodies, these governance bodies that we're electing discretion to make the resource allocation decisions that they make without everything being public. I think it would be not possible to have every single proposal. Like it would be weird if we had to like publish the cost of every audit, 
for example, right? Like there've been times in the past where we've needed to do like a, an emergency audit and we've had to like offer more money, for example, um, to an audit firm to like accelerate the process, right? Like either by offering them some like bonus SNX tokens or whatever, that's something that just needs to be discretionary. And I think it's not a reasonable thing for that to be public, for example. Um, and I, and I, again, like I get it. I feel like the Spartan Council feels like, well, we're the most important people. Like at least we should know, right? But I don't know that I necessarily agree with that perspective. No, and neither do I. That's why I push for everything that can be public to be public. Yeah, fair. Uh, but I guess, so my, my question back to you, I suppose, is if you knew that there was a risk council and the risk council had maybe four or five different things that they were paying for, like consultancy around like, you know, analysis, audits, um, you know, paying for like third party engineers to like review things, paying for maybe like static analysis or, or something like that. If you knew that they, they had a finite budget of, let's say it was 200 grand a month or something like that, right? Um, and you knew that every month they were not spending their full budget. Um, all of the things that you would expect were happening were happening. The CCs weren't complaining. The Spartan Council wasn't complaining. Would you be comfortable with the idea that none of that resource allocation was public and that none of the individual deals were, uh, were exposed to anyone outside of the Risk Council? Would you be comfortable with that? I mean, ideally, I'd like a freedom of information process Whereby after of course you would, time. of course you would, <laughs> of course you would. Um, yeah, look, I, and you know, these are all things that I think we need to, you know, we need to be aware of. I suppose, right? We need to we need to consider um, if we think that the allocation of resources to uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'll give you a really good example. This didn't happen, right? That's why this is not sensitive. But there was uh, there was a proposal. Um, back in, I think, late 2019 to do a full uh, uh, like static analysis of the entire contract suite, right? Uh, and if I remember correctly, the uh, budget for that was like $750,000. It was outrageous. But we were looking at it, and this is back when, um, you know, uh, formal verification was like, all the rage, right? Like Uniswap was talking about, they'd had all their contracts formally verified and everyone was, you know, jacking themselves off over how exciting, you know, formal verification was. And so there was like a, a genuine sense of maybe we are obligated to pay this, right? Like it was a hard call. It was like a lot of money to spend. It was probably like the same amount of money that we would spend on audits for the entire year or something, right? Um, and in the end, it didn't happen. But let's say that had happened and it had been useless, which I think on some level, I kind of feel like it would have been useless, right? Um, and so luckily, if I remember correctly, it was Jordan who shut it down. Uh, but anyway, let's say that, you know, a year later or two years later or whatever, uh, without maybe disclosing to the counterparty or whatever, whatever it was, that we then had to like publish a report of what was spent. And you could look at it and be like, wait, what the fuck? You guys spent $750,000 on formal verification of like legacy contracts that we don't even use anymore. Like who... Who authorized that and like, how do we, you know, go and take them out the back and shoot them? I would be okay with that from an accountability perspective. I think that that would be reasonable. Um, I just don't know how effective it would be. Like it's, it's nice from like a punishment perspective. I just don't know how effective it would be necessarily like the day-to-day -day operations because the people who made that decision are not even here anymore, right? So like, I don't, like I get it, but I'm just not sure how how effective it would be. Maybe two years is too long. Maybe like six months is 
uh, is better, or maybe an end of the year report and like uh, in which epoch things were spent. But again, like my my strong bias, I think, is towards letting these things be discretionary and letting the people who are doing them do them. You give them a finite budget, so they can't go and spend ten million dollars on something stupid, right? They've only got whatever it is, 200 grand a month or something to spend, you know that they're not spending more than that because the Treasury Council will tell you. And you just say, well, if you're spending 200 grand a month, give or take, and you're doing the things that we want, then I don't really care just as you were, just keep doing what you're doing. That's my bias, but I get if you kind of disagree with that and I want to put some more pressure on transparency. I mean, I assume that if there's reasonable record keeping, there's an avenue for people who are interested to uh, pursue particular information based on on-chain data and the transmission of funds. But, um, yeah, I think we've discussed the matter far enough. Does anyone else on the council have a perspective on this? Uh, I'm kind of, you know, I'm definitely open to other input here. Because um, I have a very strong bias one way, and I think Tara has a very strong bias the other way. Um, I'm kind of curious if there's some middle ground perspective, especially some people who have seen practical examples of this operating Caleb, for example. Yeah, the like uh, the process of hiring a vendor for a certain service, well, usually you would have it done, uh, of course, um, assessed through a certain committee where they uh, take in offers from different vendors and choose the one that's uh, the that provides the most benefit to uh, to the client. So it's not like we just hire the first one. You see several uh, proposals that involve a certain task. Now, after after the hiring is done, you'd need to kind of have some monitoring of the service. Like, is it up to par? Is it not up to par? Is there is there like a performance kind of um, a tracking that uh, allows for um, maybe calibration of the uh, terms of the agreement? So so it's not as simple as just like hire them and we pay it. It's usually a bit more ingrained in terms of uh, onboarding someone and then monitoring that the guy that we hired or the organization that we hired are fulfilling their uh, mandates. I don't know if this is being done right now. Like I've been giving Gauntlet uh, a hard time a bit uh, so that maybe uh, to <laughs> uh, honor the agreement, but I have no kind of responsibility or delegation from anyone to do this. I've been doing this on my own. And uh, uh, I believe like a more formal contractual agreement on certain specific uh, measurement uh, performance measurement would would be best for for hiring vendors generally was i muted or did everyone like kind of not listen or... i just I heard the um Speak noted that, especially given the amounts of, of conflicts of interest in the space, ensuring that you're getting proper value from vendors is, is very important.
yeah, getting value from it is important. Absolutely. That that that's why you need to kind of have a a committee that approves a vendor, and you need to kind of have uh, the necessary um, clauses in the contract that uh, ensures that certain uh, targets are met. Now, with a with a moving protocol such as synthetics, it's definitely hard, easier said than done, because maybe when they were hired, we didn't have escrow liquidation, we didn't have self-liquidation. There are many things that were added throughout the year, so it's it's kind of a difficult, uh, challenging uh, task to draft such a a proposal, but there should be like uh, some flexibility. Like right now, what I ask, uh, and I, when I ask content, like what, why aren't they like uh, analyzing uh, the optimism initially? They said we'd be doing it on our own. It's not part of our agreement. So for them, it's just L1. You know, that's that's where it ends. And uh, when I asked them about like uh, how, how come we're doing that, they said also it's not part of the agreement. We just do this. Like, why aren't you looking at liquidation ratio? It's not covered in the agreement. What's uh, or self liquidation? It's not covered. So it's it's kind of like a very rigid kind of agreement that's maybe outdated, and they're doing stuff on their own, you know, without. But they're less less uh, tied to contractual terms because they're doing it out of goodwill, rather than. Uh, and so, and so I think the the reality is, you know, the way that you uh, protect against these things, right, um, is. You know, and, and obviously we don't want to get to a point where functions are too fine grain, right? I think if we say we've got a risk council, they've got a budget, they can allocate it. You know, it doesn't need to go to like an external committee that has like a bunch, you know, we, we're, I think we can sure. be pretty comfortable that like the risk council that we uh, elect will be independent enough if it's three people or whatever, that there's not going to be all three of them colluding to like drain, you know, the risk council budget, for example, right? Um, which is, I think, what, what we're concerned about when it comes to, um, you know, conflicts of interest. But I think the other thing is you keep their budget relatively small so they don't go and do something that's catastrophic to the protocol and, you know, commit some crazy amount of funds that will bankrupt us. And then you monitor things and you say, okay, well, if we know that their budget's a million dollars a year, even if they go and blow a million dollars in a year on something that's not useful, um, you know, we just don't elect them again is the first thing. And then the second thing is, you know, we go and work out, you know, that thing that they did is it actually useful or did they just do a bad job of it or whatever, right? And you course correct a little bit. So as long as we keep the experiments small and we keep the budget reasonable, I think we don't have that much to worry about. I, I think that some of the fear that uh, that kind of creeps in about some of these deals is like, well, what, you know, what were the terms, right? Like, was it some, you know, preferential deal that's going to be you know, hugely impactful or, or not? And when you don't know, uh, it creates a bit of tension. But I think if you have very clear budgets for these things, then... Uh, you know, well, they couldn't have spent more than, you know, whatever it is, $300,000 on this thing or, you know, whatever, whatever it is particularly, you know, same thing with audits, right? Like we're not spending a million dollars a month on audits, right? We're, we're very careful about our audit budget. We spend a lot on audits, but we don't spend, you know, it's not unbounded, I guess. And that's where maybe I think the transparency is lacking, um, that we don't have clear budgeting around these things. I think the same thing is true for, 
the core contributor committee um, as well, right? The core contributor committee has a specific budget that was allocated by the treasury council. Um, you know, it's like $5 million a year or something like that, if I, if I remember correctly. So we know that, you know, no one's getting paid a million dollars a year because, you know, there's, there's too many core contributors for that to even make sense, right? So we can have some level of comfort that like the budget is, is reasonable. Um, but I think these are all like procedural things that without question, we could have more clarity around uh, that would take some of the uncertainty um, out, of, out of the equation, which is where I think the, the, the problems arise and people get uh, stressed about things. What if the Treasury Council just proposed a budget or things like that and requested, like, either had to agree with Spartan Council or Risk Committee or Core Contributor Committee, whoever, like, what the budget is for certain things like audits? Um, like well, someone, someone, has to, someone has to have discretionary responsibility for setting those budgets, right? Um, so, you know, ultimately that responsibility has to lie somewhere. We've decided for now that that discretionary responsibility lies with the Treasury Council. They have the ability to spend effectively an unlimited amount of money, right? Someone has to, someone has to add the keys to the Treasury, right? Sure. Um, which is one of the reasons why we are so careful about who we elect to the Treasury Council, right? Because we don't want them to go and rug us and, and take all the money, right? Which is so far <laughs> so good. Um, but like ultimately someone had, so even if you said, okay, well, it has to be agreed between the Spartan Council and the Treasury Council or this council and that council, like all you're doing is adding complexity to the same functional role, which is deciding what we spend on things, right? At the moment, the way that it works is the Treasury Council says, CCC, here's your budget. Um, you know, they say, uh, you know, to... Um, whoever, right? The Grants Council, here's your budget, right? Like they set budgets for all of these different bodies and then those bodies go out and spend them. Sure. Um, what, what I'm saying is more of if they had a budget, like a quarterly budget that they set and they disclosed that, I like at the end of each term or something, what that budget looked like. And if people didn't like, like it. A, by, by category, you mean? Like, uh, yeah, you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to spend 500K on audits or something. Right, right, right. Okay, right. sorry. I because I, by, by I, category, I not by that, category. Like, right, rather than having like a whole separate body that like they go, like rather than just like give a, a quarterly report. And if it seems like, you know, people want to give feedback to them on how that budget is is allocated they can in the community and if people really don't like it then they can vote them out you know yeah i think i think having some reporting um like but, but there know, are things like report. yeah like a, a, a spending report but like there there are certainly things like we can't oversee market <laughs> market maker details um and, and that sort of stuff like that it's just not gonna not gonna work but but for for certain things, grants, CCs, all that stuff, like there's not really a reason why at least the, um, whatever the allocation is, couldn't be made available after the fact for feedback. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I, we kind of have this, right? I think it's maybe just uh, not as clearly laid out. It's like it, across like four or five different SIPs. Like there is a, there is already a structure uh, for this. It's probably just not being reported on. It's just kind of implicit in the SIPs. Um, so yeah, I think that uh, some more transparency there could be good for sure.
And am I right in thinking the Treasury Council is the only council in which we don't currently have a member on this call? They're too important for these calls. Someone, someone go tell Treasury Council they gotta submit a budget. Um, yeah, I don't see any of them in the <laughs> audience. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Um, you, you know, I never heard of the voice of any Treasury Council member, maybe ever. Well, remember, three of them are anon, right? Um, yeah, all so, of them, no? You've, Jordan, Jordan. Not You've heard the voice of Jordan in the last governance call. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Jordan, Jordan's there. He's still, still, he's still keeping them honest. Don't worry. He kept me honest for four years. I think he can keep the three of them honest. So, um, I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in his ability. I think I think one other thing to point out is like the Treasury Council does go and speak to large token holders fairly regularly because those are the people that are voting them in um, and also other stakeholders. They, you know, at their discretion, they do go and, and talk to people. Um, maybe you just need to make friends with them, Tara, and they'll talk to you a bit more um, so you can get the information that you require. Um, unfortunately, I think that's that's the only uh, that's the only pathway other than mandating that they, you know, provide uh, these reports, which I think we could definitely do. We could pass a, a meta-governance proposal that mandates some quarterly reporting or something like that. I think that's not a bad idea. Could we? Could we pass a meta-governance proposal? Could we please? 100%. Yes, 100% we could. Like, so I think to be clear, the, the Spartan Council is the only council that is able to pass meta-governance proposals that apply to everyone in the community, right, to the entire protocol. The reason why meta-governance proposals require unan like unanimous voting, right, is for this exact reason that, like, we need to have, uh, we need to be sure that this is something that the entire community wants to happen. Right, uh, because the Spartan Council is not in charge of the Treasury Council, um, and and they don't, um, you know, they don't have a role to tell them what to do. We elect them independently, um, but we do have a role for setting how governance works. So I think that if we if we decided that we wanted more more transparency as a community from the Treasury Council, they're responsible ultimately to token holders, um, and so if the token holders request that the Spartan Council pass something that puts more restrictions on the Treasury Council, that's legitimate in my mind. But it's not legitimate for like the Spartan Council to turn up and be like, hey, do this. Um, you know, it's, it requires like a, a more formal process for implementing a change like that. Hundreds of time. Well, is there anything else we want to cover? I hope this is what you guys have been doing for the last three weeks, just talking about meta governance. Um, I hope you didn't just wait for me to come back to have these uh, riveting conversations. We did, but we couldn't pass them. Because Ouch. we didn't have everybody.
Sorry, I, I've been having issues with my mic, so I, I don't want to reopen the whole conversation, but since Kane did ask if some other people, you know, have input on this. Um, so I, I've never really gotten Treasury Council like this discretionary. I think this, the word discretionary was said like 15 times in, in the last 20 minutes. So I've never really gotten it as such. Since it was voted in, I, I kind of expected them to establish a, a framework you know, similar to to SIPs or or whatnot, where at least you know some of the things are kind of captured and expenses. Um, and and the reason I'm I'm kind of saying this is because you know looking back and at every decision they've made, I don't really see myself opposing it. So I'm I'm not really sure where the discretionary need comes from. So even things like jump gauntlet, I I, I applaud of all of them. And I would expect the community also to be supportive of such, you know, decisions. So I like, I, I get the overhead, but I don't really see the need for all of that to be discretionary, especially retroactively speaking. Like, I don't see why someone would have an issue with whatever the deal was struck with Trump, because I'm pretty sure Treasury Council was responsible and, and had the reasons to make such a deal. So um, I guess I'm more leaning towards, you know, what Terry is saying, and I, I would also appreciate more, um, transparency and reporting and I, I think part of the problem is that we aren't hearing from them you know more frequently in these meetings so that's something that would probably help with with you know the conversation and also look, looking back to the conversation if if spartan council is above or you know i don't think it's above but as, as ken you laid out spartan council is responsible of how the this governance is set up and Treasury Council is part of the governance, right? So it would be it, it would be fell on, on Spartan Council to I don't know find out find a new mechanism if we think you know the current one is not working. And also, since you are talking about budgeting, you know my question is you know what, what defines Treasury Council limits? Like besides, I mean, you're saying you can revote them, but they can like send out the whole Treasury to to whatever. Like obviously, not, they're not going to do that, but. I, I do think we should have some checks and balances even for Treasury Council. Thanks, Anya. That's helpful. <laughs> All right. No, I, th I like. I think we're all broadly in agreement, right? Like, we want transparency. We want accountability. Um, we also, I think, ideologically, at least, um, you know, as the Spartan Council, you're participating in a discretionary body, right? The, dis the, the Spartan Council also has discretion to make decisions on behalf of token holders, right? That's our job. Um, and the reason why we do that instead of, you know, direct token democracy is because that's idiotic. Um, so, you know, I think that we need to just maybe course correct a little bit so that people feel more comfortable um that you know uh, like in terms of our decisions every decision that's one council makes is public right like the reasoning might not necessarily all be public there's definitely some uh conversations that happen in dms and things like that uh, we do try to you know have the conversations in public as much as possible but ultimately the decisions that we make are, are public right people can see who voted on what whether they voted you know maybe their reasoning um, if people are feeling friendly um, to disclose that. Uh, whereas that's not the case with the Treasury Council. And I think it is a slightly different mandate that the Treasury Council has versus what Spark Council has. Um, 
but there's there's no question that it's not perfect right like you know we haven't we haven't really made many modifications to the treasury council mandate since it was set up you know where, 18 months ago or something like that. So there's definitely, I think there's a lot of room in a lot of areas within synthetic synthetics governance for some meta governance changes. Um, and I'm very happy, Tara, for us to reach across the aisle, metaphorically speaking, um, and work together to implement some of those um, because I, I'm not in disagreement with you that I think that there's some improvements that could be made. I think if it was an aisle, that would mean you were proposing, Kane. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. Reach, reach across the, the chambers from the doves to the hawks or whatever it is that we're debating at the, at the time. I think we've excelled ourselves in terms of governance tonight, talking about this for the last <laughs> hour. And right on time for some more governance from Caleb. Unless there was anything else to squeeze in. I think so. Yes. I got cut off. I think uh, so, I think it's over to you. Time for four sips. So I believe we have three sips. We'll go in uh, in order. So the first one was um, the volume program. Bert, you there? Yep, I'm here. Um... All right, let me share it on the channel. So it's SIPS 261, uh, Futures Volume Program. Yeah, all right. Um, so this uh, this SIP was inspired by SIP 132. Um, we have a volume program going on um, for synth swaps. Um, so there are SNX rewards that get diverted to uh, partner protocols already based on their, um, their proportion of synth swap volume. Um, the reason I thought that uh, this was important to expand to futures is because it's already been helpful in um, helping incentivize uh, partners to build on top and actually provide funds for um, uh, for partners to hire uh, community devs or um, use for marketing purposes and that sort of thing. So it, it actually will directly come back um, to incentivize future building and future development. Um, which directly benefits stakers, right? Because each dollar volume that these partner protocols produce uh, results in, you know, uh, however many basis points of, uh, of fees directly to stakers. So um, expanding this to futures, I think will be, uh, will be possibly even more valuable because I think um, right now there's actually a lot of uh, potential volume that, that's to be captured. Um, on futures, uh, you can see right now it's kind of you know oscillating back and forth. Uh, atomic swaps have been very high the last uh, few weeks, but right now we're we're sitting at approximately equal volume for the day between the two. Um, 
so the rewards I've uh, I've set aside um, in this sip are four thousand SNX weekly. Um, this is a little bit higher than the initial rewards from or the rewards from uh, sip the one thirty two. But the reason I, I set them here, actually, if you look at the SNX price and the level of um, inflation when SIP 132 was passed, is actually a much, much smaller percentage um, of rewards and and comes in um, at a much uh, smaller dollar value than it was at the time. Um, the reason I decided to still be relatively conservative and not go all out is because, as you can see, the SNX price is fairly um, volatile. So I have here the uh, a few uh, a few weeks of fees generated listed in a table, and you can see that already in the the tables I was using. I think what is it two point two forty eight for the price of synthetics already above four dollars. So I wanted to make sure that there was plenty of room where um, if the price of synthetics rises, um, it's still going to be a fairly um, a fairly in insignificant amount compared with total inflation. Um, one thing I wanted to highlight that that somebody had questioned me on, um, these rewards would be coming in as liquid tokens because in order to use them for things like uh, development or marketing, um, partner protocols would need to have them liquid. Um, this isn't just so partner protocols can like have free synthetics to stake. This is so they can, um, you know, actually use the synthetics uh, in order to keep generating additional volume. Uh, we would like this to be profitable for stakers. Um, and so... It's, I think, important to make sure that um, any partner that's approved to do this is is able to actually use those tokens in such a way where um, where they're actually going to increase the amount of volume on L2 uh, using those tokens. So at current, um, yeah, these, these numbers are going to be a little rough with the recent price in synthetics, but I have a, a table here so you can kind of see how what kind of fees are generated um, on L2 right now and, and get a sense for... Um, how much volume increase we would have to have in order for um, for this to actually be profitable, and it's a fairly small amount. If we if this program could even increase volume on L two by an average of around um, let's see, I think a one point eight times the number here, so a little under five percent, uh, it would be profitable for for stakers. Um, so the things that we would need to do here, um, that on with the uh, existing synth rewards program, um, partner protocols are, are approved to do that. So we would need to have some kind of application process uh, by which people can say that they are in fact partner protocols um, that are generating volume on L2 and can use this rewards to increase their the volume that they're generating. Um, and then we would need a way for them to uh, claim their rewards weekly on the optimism network. Um, let's see, what did I skip here? Um, yeah. And then I have, I have a breakdown here, just a, a small example, which was, um, almost exactly the example just lifted from SIP 132 about how it would be broken down. So you can see it's, it's proportional. Um, if you generate 20% of the, uh, volume, you get 20% of the, uh, of the rewards. If we approve the SIP, um, how would it work in terms of the application process? Do we consider no project currently whitelisted and then we would have to then approve? And if so, if we're approving on an individual basis, how does that approval process occur? 
Yeah, so I left this a little bit um a little bit open ended here. Um the only mandate I really included here was that they um was that partner protocols uh, do some kind of application process. So th what I was uh, kind of imagining here is just a simple type form application. Um, and, uh, you know, I, the, uh, the point of the point of having an application process isn't really because um, I'm assuming that we're going to be denying a lot of people. I mean, I think we we kind of know who the uh, major partner protocols are. If we have, um, uh, there's obviously Quenta and then um, Polynomial building a basis trading vault. Those are kind of the two that would be immediately um, probably eligible for this. Um, it's more just that uh, we don't want people going directly to the contracts and, and making trades and participating in this because that doesn't really help stakers at all. Um, but yeah, I guess I, I don't really have uh, too much clarity on exactly how the process would work. Um, the process wasn't really described in incredible detail in the original SIP 132 that I based this on. So um, I could definitely come back with more detail if that's necessary. Um, but yeah, I did leave it a little bit open-ended. So just um, to check. Am I? To, sorry. Go okay. You go. No, no. You go. Uh, sorry. SIP sure. 132, <laughs> is that the most... I, sorry, I think I've got a bit of lag. Um, SIP 132, is that the most recent volume program SIP? Am I, uh, I, I thought that we had, um, it wasn't a volume program SIP necessarily. It was just like a-, a uh, Yeah, there is 203. Yeah, yeah, volume stores free, 203. And it says it's review pending. Yeah. So, okay, so it's not, it, it's voted in. It's just the status is wrong in the SIPs repo. It just was never implemented, if I remember correctly, right? So, like that, um, I don't know. Um, uh, that has some significant improvements, if I remember correctly, to the original volume program. So, it might be worth looking at that. Like, it makes uh, generation of partner codes uh, permissionless, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think, I think, um, I don't know if you looked at that, but it could be worth having a look at. Yeah, definitely that. And and just to, to kind of get the, the numbers straight from the, the SIP. So you're asking for, or, or I mean, it's going to be a variable, but to begin with, it's 4,000 SNX coming out of inflation, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is a weekly, whereas 132 was monthly. And, and which inflation? Should we spec out, specify that? Like L1, L2 inflation, or like, I, I guess probably L2, right? Since futures. Yeah, we um yeah, we should specify as L2. Um I guess if the um if we implement the most recent SIP to burn SUSD, then the benefits would be um spread across both layers, but at this point it would be just uh just going toward L2, so I think that makes sense. I mean personally I would I would support this. I think it's a, a small enough number to to kickstart things I, I do wonder if someone you know from protocol engineers can comment out on what's needed to to add this to the backend uh, i'm not sure if uh, futures support something like this right now or it's like a contract change okay. of what magnitude go ahead it would be uh, uh probably an add-on because the futures contracts are uh, immutable 
they cannot be updated via proxy. Um, we would need to do maybe off-chain uh, computation. One, one, one thing I would uh, maybe uh, ask to look into is to maybe try to uh, not spread the volume, the, the rewards as per uh, volume generated, because uh, I know a few bots that make up the most of the volume that uh, have been profitable sometimes and having losses at other times. So I would assume that they get like 90% of the, or 80% of the reward. So I would maybe focus on uh, non-major uh, synth, like, or uh, futures markets, like not the ETH and Bitcoin market. With that, you would probably be distributing the fees towards uh, our core users rather than bots. Oh uh, yeah, well, this wouldn't be distributed to uh, users. This would, like in uh, one thirty-two, this would be uh, distributed directly to, like, the front ends um, or partner protocols integrating futures. So, okay, all right. So it's not uh, gonna be um, pass on towards traders. It will be towards the. Well, I guess that de that depends on you know, right, Quanta or or whomever, right? Sure. Okay. And and so, what's the difference between um, having this and the current volume program? Is that the current volume program does not include futures? Is that it? Yeah, yeah, that's the major difference here. Um, the numbers have been changed a little bit, but the major difference is that the current volume program that's active right now doesn't include futures at all. Sure. And there was like I, I think Kane also uh, spoke about is that the add-on fee. Is something that's gonna happen with V two futures? I would believe. I would think uh, maybe Afif would have info on that. Uh, the, the 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 volume fee that that can be added on top of the existing fee. Is this something as part of the specification of V two futures? Yeah, I I think Arthur's been working on that. So that would be maybe a. Uh, as we dis uh, discussed previously, a um, more holistic uh, way to pass a uh, 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 stream of uh, funds to uh, integrators rather than um, a small amount of SNX that doesn't maybe uh, scale with volume. Yeah, I, I do agree that scaling with volume ideally um, in the long run is going to be is going to be a better approach. Um, I think my my thinking with uh, bringing this forward immediately is that I'm not sure the timeline on um, on implementing something that will actually scale with volume. And um, that's fair. Yeah, and this would sure. this would be something where yeah we can this this can uh, have benefit to stakers right now um, can be used Im immediately upon implementation, and then uh, we can always um, we can always get rid of it if there's something better to replace it. All right. It, usually, it's harder to get rid of it than to bring it online, as as we've experienced. But I think um, you know it's uh, pretty straightforward to configure part of inflation to go to um, to a certain address. This is not something that 
requires contract changes. I think we can already configure it uh, with a distributor. Uh, Ali can correct me if uh, I'm right. I think I think um, I'd have to check, but I think you're incorrect. Um, we have a rewards distribution system for L1, um, and we can send uh, one of them is L2, right? Sure, uh, but, but I'm not sure we have a rewards distribution in a, in L2 itself. Sure. I mean, uh, even right now, uh, we send uh, rewards uh, to uh, Treasury Council, if I'm not mistaken. We do the distribution. Mm. And that yeah. um, that amount of uh, allocation based on volume is done by uh, Treasury Council, Council themselves based on the graph, whatever. And they use both right. L1 and L2 volumes, if I'm not mistaken for their um, integrations, uh, for their uh, reward allocation. So to just maybe uh, editing the supply, uh, the distribution, I, I think, so that to increase it by the amount specified in this SIP. And they would be like handing it over to Quenta or whatever. I think they already have the uh, computation done uh, for non-futures um, exchanges and Futures is just like a different uh, dunes. I think they use dune or, or a stats page or something. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Does anyone have any other questions or concerns about this uh, particular SIP? Great. Okay, let's move on to the next one. Thank you, Bert. Thank you. All right, the next one is SIP 263. Uh, clarity on so the definition of unanimity, uh, unanimity in meta-governance votes. Okay, this one's mine. Um, so this one is designed to address a particular problem in which you have um, a member of the Spartan Council removed from their post, and as a result of that, meta-governance votes then cease to be actionable for the next two weeks. And on top of that, there's the potential that if that person who has been removed is then re-voted into the Spartan Council, they can lock up governance indefinitely. So this, this SIP attempts to redefine or clarify the definition of unanimity so that um, a unanimous vote on the part of the Spartan Council is one that includes all active members. So assuming SIP 300 passes or SCCP 300 passes, which sets um, the minimum number of Spartan councillors that can be in the position to N minus one prior to an election being triggered, um, that would mean that one Spartan councillor could be dismissed and then the remaining seven should still pass meta-governance. Meta and that's about it. So, so uh, does it mean like um, uh, when in, in uh, SCCP 300, it was like someone, it has to be N minus one for it, for someone to be uh, removed with would that still be the case or uh, 
like how how does it play? Uh, it's just yeah, it doesn't address the end number, so um, it would just if I, I think despite being on the third time of trying, um, SCCP three hundred passes, then the PDAO or whoever is in control of the Spartan Council, the owner of the Spartan Council, can only dismiss one member of the council before an emergency vote is triggered, which then kind of ticks in two weeks of um, basically the election process. Um, so that doesn't, this SIP doesn't touch that. It merely defines unanimity as that number of Spartan councillors who haven't been dismissed as being a unanimous vote. If that makes sense to you. Yeah. And, and um, how does dilution factor in into this SIP? Is something that's always um, being discussed. So, you know, like the fact that you need um, unanimous vote on something and someone gets diluted. What does dilution entail? Like how, how does it uh, get enacted? The previous maybe uh, definition that was used between us, not formally, maybe uh, uh, passed in a SIP, is to um, assume that you'd need 50% to be 50% of your, of your voting power to be diluted for your uh, vote to be nullified. So has the dilution um, approach to the meta-governance votes been laid out in a SIP itself? Or it's been commonly understood, though, non-documented? <laughs> commonly understood, yeah. yeah. Okay. English law. So it would just perpetuate that same commonly understood process. But, I mean, saying that, it would probably be a good idea to uh, document the dilution process somewhere, and I wouldn't be opposed to making that addition. Yeah, so, so normally it's... Yeah, like, I, would, I, I would personally love to see that addressed um, and formalized. The dilution. Uh, yeah, the dilution. I, I think... For now, we don't have a functional way of actually implementing it. So um, I'd be inclined to say that, um, you know, given that there's no operating dilution mechanism, uh, that you you literally look at the number of votes um, and, and ignore any, um, I mean, you can't actually dilute. Right. So I think it would be good to just address the fact that dilution is not currently functional. Um, and so it just requires uh, N of N on the Spartan Council, or in this case, A of A, which is to be explicit. Yeah, but how does that play into this particular SIP? It, it doesn't play into that particular SIP other than there is ambiguity there and you know oftentimes we take an opportunity when there's a SIP that is addressing a specific issue like you know uh meta governance or whatever to uh, you know put a rider in i guess is <laughs> the, the um the only uh suggestion that i have as opposed to like writing in, in the individual SIP um i know it's not the most ideal thing ever but so you know I, I, my preference would be if you would be willing to address this issue because it, it comes up a lot that'd be great but 
I'm not going to die on this hill. No, no, I'm fine to do that. Um, I just don't necessarily want to add clarification on one point into a SIP that then gets rejected based on the underlying mission of that SIP. Yeah, understood. Uh, well, I mean, if, look, if it gets... I, I don't think anyone's going to have an objection to addressing the fact that there is no such thing as dilution in the current uh, regime. That, would be, that feels weird. If anyone on the council thinks that is the case, I'd like to hear that um, and, and find out why. Um, so I don't think that's going to be controversial. Um, I think it would just be good to just explicitly clarify that as it stands right now, there is no such thing as solution. And so uh, a unanimous vote is definitionally eight of eight. Does that make sense? So or am, you, I, am I, am I so, being unclear? Are you saying like, uh, are you saying that there's no definition of dilution or there is no dilution? I'm saying there is no dilution. Dilution doesn't exist. Dilution used to exist and it no longer exists. There is no way for you to dilute. There's no way for a token holder uh, to dilute. Um, uh, okay, to remove dilution from the equation altogether. So we're Exactly. We're just removing, we're saying as it stands right now, in, in the current implementation of B3GM, there is no such thing as dilution. Therefore, okay. to be very explicit, like uh, a unanimous vote does not factor in dilution because it doesn't exist. Okay, now that makes sense. And the reason uh, we factored out well, dilution if, uh, is because... Well, we built a system that doesn't have dilution and yeah, of we course. still reference dilution like so you know if <laughs> we course. in the future decide to build dilution in right which we won't because v3 gm doesn't use dilution it uses a different system right it uses veto power as opposed to uh, individual member dilution so we just need to deprecate dilution as a concept because it's not going to exist in future forms of governance but if for some bizarre reason we decide that we're going to implement dilution in a future state, then we need to address that in the SIP that actually implements it because it doesn't exist right now. So it creates confusion because there's this like reference thing that's not real. I mean, this this SIP um, doesn't need to factor in dilution, and it seems pointless to deny the existence of something that doesn't exist within this SIP for an amendment to it. Again, like it's up to you, right? I just think it might be worth drawing a line in the sand and saying, like, you know, uh, as an as an addendum to this SIP, right? That like as of you know whatever uh, SIP. I mean, the other thing to go back would be to like go and edit the V three GM SIP um, and explicitly call out that like within uh, within V three GM there is no concept of dilution and so dilution as reference in previous sips is no longer applicable that's the other alternative i guess um as i said i'm not going to die on this hill i just it feels like it comes up all the time and um it would be good to just close this out once and for all uh, where do you stand on the content of the sip in terms of how it addresses um unanimity being active non-dismissed spartan council members i'm happy with that i'm happy yeah. with that I got no issues with that. Um, any other comments or thoughts from the rest of the Spartan Council or anyone else? Well, I guess that's that. I'll set up the vote on this. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, yeah, and 
I'll make any amendments to the initial SIP rather than touching this one because I think it it makes sense to have it in the most complete document that we have. Sure. So we'll move on to the last SIP for today. SIP three. Sorry, just so just to be clear, that would be uh, the V three GM SIP you're referring to that you'll you'll make an amendment to. Is that right? Yes, as I understood okay, cool. describing the two alternatives. Yeah, I think that's what's missing. I think I think uh, just updating the V3GM SIP to explicitly call out that there is no dilution functionality, so it deprecates all uh, previous references to dilution. Yeah, if you could do that, that'd be awesome. I'm happy to do that. All right, Afif, SIP 3.1. I think Noah's presenting this one. Oh, okay. Yep, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to speak to it. Um, yeah, so this is the first uh, V3 SIP we're presenting. Um, it's not the most exciting one, but it's pretty foundational to the protocol. And um, yeah, we've made some progress in implementation and assuming you know, we'll, we'll obviously take in, uh, feedback into account, but after this, we can start getting code into audit, and it, that should really help uh, us pick up momentum on uh, V3 development. Um, so, yeah, it, basically, the proposal here is um, in, in V2X, currently, stakers in the system are referenced by um, an address, and instead, for V3, we're proposing stakers are effectively um, referenced by an ID, and that ID would correspond to an NFT. So um, when you uh, first stake with synthetics on V3, you'll get issued an NFT, an account token. Um, and there are a lot of benefits here um, from a user experience standpoint. Uh, you can transfer them. You know, you can just have them in, in your wallet. If you want to change the wallet that's controlling it, that's an option. Um, it creates an interesting side effect where there could be a secondary market for uh, staking accounts. Um, and also built into this proposal is that we would, we would um, in the account token logic, have uh, essentially roles-based access control, um, meaning that you would have the owner of the account is like the owner of the NFT, but that the owner then has the option to allow other addresses uh, specific permissions. So um, maybe you have a staking account um, owned by a hardware wallet, but you would like to be able to claim rewards from you know, a, a different wallet that you happen to have, or there are all sorts of uh, interesting composability related use cases too uh, that, that sort of fall out of that. Um, I can throw a preliminary design for the UI for um, uh, the roles-based access control in the chat right now. One second. Cool. Yeah. So that I just put it in the Gov call chat. Um, it's still preliminary, but uh, it gives you a sense of you know it, it looks familiar for like uh, sort of account permissions and like Web two applications too. It's a similar pattern. Um, yeah. So I, I I can pause there. Um, happy to discuss or take questions on this. Yeah, I got a, a technical question. <clears throat> Sorry if my voice fails, but uh, I'm not in a very good state at the moment. Um, so I'm, I'm just wondering, um, 
how does this uh, the implementation of this behave in terms of um, moving an account into another chain? Like uh, we know that's a problem uh, with any uh, like EOA wrapper, right? Uh, between chains, so we're suffering from from this uh, more every day. So I'm just wondering: is this resistant to that problem, or or does it suffer from that problem? Um, that is a good question. Uh, the, we were gonna. Um, I think DB is actually on a call with Chainlink right now about CCIP. So we are starting to take into account what the plan is for cross-chain. Uh, I, I think as it stands, as the proposal stands right now, you have in a separate account per chain, um, and then the the synthesis would sort of occur at at a sort of fund level. So you would be staking different amounts per different chains, and you would have separate accounts that way. Okay, so they're completely uh, contained within a chain. Yes, yeah. As uh, based on the current proposal, that's what that's what we have. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Given that a user's um, entire account will be contained within a single NFT. Uh, does this not make them exponentially more vulnerable to having essentially all of their funds hacked through loss of custody of that NFT? Uh, it's a good question. I, I don't see it as an additional security concern over um, like sort of if you lose the private key to your wallet versus you lose the private key to your wallet and someone transfers away an NFT. Um, yeah, I'm. I guess I personally don't see it as a higher security risk, but that is something we could investigate more. I actually see it as a as better security, because if you're not like taking out your your biggest or most important role that can actually transfer the NFT or do like um, I don't know with a big withdrawal, um, and you're just claiming with a hot wallet, it's actually safer. Yeah, Spook just pointing out set approval for all um, something of a risk, as we've seen, of uh, multiple, even eight holders. Interesting. Um, yeah, I can I can look into this further. Um, I guess presumably we could uh, omit that from the spec if there was interest in that. When you do actions like minting, burning, does that then update your NFT? Uh, so the way it would work is like you, you would um, you would attempt to execute a transaction, and you would say, "I'm sort of acting on behalf of account uh, 50, let's say," and then the system checks. Uh, 
or do you either own uh, the NFT for account 50 or has account 50 granted this, the address that you're calling from uh, permission to do that? Um, so it doesn't like, I, I wouldn't think of it as modifying the NFT directly. It's more like the NFT is like credentials. And then the system is just tracking stakers based on the NFT IDs rather than um, addresses as it's implemented currently. So it's not like changing your uni LP position, right? Where you get a new or different NFT. Uh, yeah, the idea would stay the same. Okay. Would it, would it be possible to just allow for a wrapper for someone that wants to move their NFT or move their position as an NFT? I, I got to think about Um, a wrapper around the, the V2X system or uh, what, what would be wrapped here? Sorry. <laughs> the, um, I was gonna, like making it something that's optional rather than storing everyone's position as an NFT. So like you could choose to wrap your position as an NFT to transfer it and then unwrap it. So to somewhat address some of the NFT security concerns people were talking about. I am not sure that's a good idea either. So never mind. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring it up with the, with the other engineers. Uh, yeah, I think that would add, add complexity and not necessarily uh, resolve that issue, but it's a, it's a good suggestion. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you. I mean, unless um, the NFT is actually like a, a smart wallet, a smart account, uh, but it's probably not the current implementation, right? Um, I mean, a smart account in the sense that uh, any address can tell it to tell any message to the system, right? Um, and that way, the NFT would be a wrapper and you would be able to interact with the system directly if you didn't want to use the NFT feature. But yeah, it sounds like more complex than uh, the implementation that's being suggested. So, so let's say someone mistakes with the functionality laid out in 301 and Normally, like assuming I've staked 100 SNX and issued some debt, uh, th does this SIP uh, tackle that or no, not yet? Is it in a separate SIP? Yeah, so we'll start getting into that with um, SIPs uh, uh, 302 and 303. Um, and I'll, I'm okay. going to make some updates to those in the meantime. But yeah, this is just meant to address like at a very foundational level. Um, yeah, sort of sol solving the issues of sort of account management. So, so it just like represents how much um, collateral you um, incorporated into your position. Am I right? Yeah, exactly. Again, it's like sort of every every concept that exists in V2X that currently references a staker as an address. In V3, we're saying we'll just have it uh, reference as an as ID effectively. Yeah, and so. Assuming someone uh, 
is referenced with an ID and has uh, received this NFT because he um, sent SNX to the contract, right? Is this how it works? He receives the ID, he sends SNX or no? Yeah, so it'll be um, uh, it, it, it'll involve like onboarding will involve um, a couple of calls, but we'll wrap them up in a multi-call. So from a UX standpoint, it's just one one click. But the first um, the first step would be calling the mint uh, account token function, which anyone can do, um, and then it just you know gives you an ID with nothing associated with it. Uh, and then the next step would be staking collateral okay. into the system. Um, associated okay. with with that ID and then you would delegate the collateral as a third step to um, effectively to markets to back since. Okay, so this uh, step is just for the identification. It has no collateral, just a way to identify an account. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're just trying to break the system out into smaller parts because there's going to be a lot okay. going on. So we're, we're keeping the scope yeah, limited here. Sure. And there's like, one identification per account, or you could have like multiple identification per account. Uh, each account is uh, an ID, like as an NFT. Um, you know, NFTs all have IDs, right? So, like that—that's the sort of canonical reference for the account. Um, but then the account can have uh, multiple addresses that would have permission to do various things with it. All right. Now yeah, that makes sense. Um, I have another technical question. Um, let's suppose that um, a year after launch, uh, B3 has like a, a new module, a new feature, right? Uh, would this mean that the NFTs need to be updated in any way or are they generic like to whatever the system does? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think in general, we're not foreseeing many updates here, except um, we might introduce new uh, roles or effectively new, like um, if there's a new action that we're introducing that stakers can take, then we may want to introduce a new role into this code, um, effectively another checkbox of an individual thing that you're a permission that you can delegate to other addresses if you wanted. Uh, but, but otherwise, we don't really foresee this changing too much. But I mean, this could be an issue um, because if you have, a, a, I don't know, 2,000 NFTs out there and they cannot call the new function of the system, then you're, you're in trouble, right? So I think the upgradability of these, um, let, let's say, front um, or interface with the system needs to be addressed. Well, the, the, the NFT isn't really calling the system, right? It's more that like the system uh, in, in the sort of security logic is confirming that the caller um, has the NFT or the permissions oh, associated right. NFT for the address, for, for yeah. the action being called. Yeah, then the, it doesn't mean any, it doesn't need any forward logic. It just holds uh, a bunch of permissions. Exactly, exactly. So like we might add a new type of permission down the line. I could see that happening, but otherwise uh, this should be able to stay pretty, pretty static. Yeah, that's, that's really good.
I think you said this, but maybe I, I'm not sure if I understood, but you said multiple accounts can use multiple like wallet addresses can use one NFT. So like an account could potentially be controlled by multiple addresses. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. This is a little clearer with the. Um, I'll, I'll tag you in the in the image of the UI that we put together. Like the idea is, there's one owner that is sort of like a super user, or like a su you know like super admin of the account. But then uh, they would be able to delegate other addresses. I, I think the general use case would be other wallets owned by the same person, but it could be anything, um, uh, and delegate them specific permissions. But by default, that wouldn't like you. You would opt into that functionality. Cool. Um, I mean, if there if there's nothing else, um, I can I can go back oh, to the other yeah. Um, I'll I'll take back the feedback on um, just uh, confirming that we're all cool with how this is going to work for cross chain and looking into like uh, the set approval for all and just sort of generally what we're thinking about security for this. But um, yeah, uh, otherwise I think that I think we've covered everything. All right. Uh, then after. I'll, I'll wait before setting up the post on this one. Thank you very much. I oh, guess that's it for today. Unless, uh, go ahead. Um, is it envisaged, envisaged that um, these NFTs are also going to be incorporated within the governance system? Currently, Spartan councillors and other members of governance receive NFTs in order to act um, within elections or voting periods. How are they going to interact with new accounts? Uh, that, that's a good question. Right now, this is just uh, representing sort of the entity of a staker. Um, and so we, we could have them um, potentially impact governance. I guess we'll, um, we'll need to explore that further. I'm ideologically opposed to delegating governance to other accounts or potential persons. Even if it does mean votes get passed more quickly. Yeah, the delegation functionality here is just for um, like relating to activities that stakers take. Um, I think it would be up to the governance module to decide about uh, being able to delegate voting power from one staker to another. Cool, thanks Noah. Cool, all right, thanks. Okay. Thank you everyone. Have a good evening. Thanks everyone. Thanks. Yeah. Bye-bye.